0: Is that better? Yeah. Good morning, PPC. Well, it is a pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, spent this morning preparing to get up here and preach by trying to get this microphone fitted. Eli, if you're listening, brother, I understand, I understand your pain, uh, but it is all right. We got it done. Um, so if you... Um, are not already there, please turn in your Bible Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. We'll read, pray, and then get into it. Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you and are just thankful for the church, for ordaining that the preached word of God be proclaimed from this pulpit every Sunday, from now until you would have uh, us move on to other places, Lord, or you return, we thank you that the church is the most secure investment that we could make. That it is through your church and through your preaching of the word that you choose to regenerate hearts. So we pray, Lord, that as your word is preached this morning, that hearts would be regenerated, that the loss would be won to Christ, that those who are already in Christ would be convicted would seek to live more righteous and holy and upright lives and be more and more transformed into the image of Christ, and that through your preaching, that you would be glorified. Lord, I pray that you would settle my heart and settle my nerves and speak through me in a way that I cannot do, that every word that comes from my mouth would be a word of the spirit that you would have preached to this people today. Lord, thank you for your word, for its truth and for its goodness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson tries to convey to his audience the lengths and the pains that Jesus would go for his people. The movie is exceptionally graphic in its brutality in the beatings, the whippings, the the mockings, and the torture and eventual murder of Jesus. And it's a hard movie to watch. But at the end of that movie, if you're like me, you're kind of left asking one question. Why? Why does Jesus go through that? Why does Jesus endure whippings and beatings and mockings? Why does Jesus endure the cross? What's the point? Surely the movie does convey the the passion of Jesus and the resolve that he has to execute the Father's will, but it leaves us wondering why. And so if you leave here this morning and you leave with anything, I hope you leave with this that everything Jesus does in his earthly ministry is the result of God's compassion for the lost and his desire to save them. And in order to understand this, I want us to see three truths, the first being why Jesus has compassion, how Jesus shows that compassion, and how Jesus spreads that compassion. So the first, why Jesus has compassion... You know, in order to understand verses 35, 37, and 38, I believe we need to start with verse 36. It's kind of the main point of this section of verses, and I think it's essential for us. But I think we need to ask a question. And the simple question is Does Jesus need to save sinners? Does God have to save sinners? Or could God satisfy his righteous requirements of justice and and holiness, and his, his wrath against sin without the cross. I think the answer to this is a resounding no, God doesn't need to save sinners. He could satisfy his righteous requirements by justly sending every single one of us to an eternity in hell. But Christ doesn't. But God doesn't. So the answer to the question really is, why does God choose to save sinners? Now, I think in Jesus, we get a glimpse into the mind of God. See, when we, we talk about Jesus, we have to remember two things about Jesus. We have to remember that he is truly God, and he is truly man. And so when we're, we're talking about Jesus's plan to save sinners, we have to view it with the whole view of Jesus in mind, that he is inseparably God and man from the moment of his incarnation forward. So in verse 36, when Matthew gives us a simple little statement that says Jesus had compassion on them, we are getting a glimpse into the Godhead, into the mind of God, that Christ, who, who planned redemption in eternity past, now performing redemption in his humanity now, is compassionate. That the main reason that God chooses to save sinners is because of his compassion for the lost. So Jesus' compassion is motivated by two things. First, by who he is, and second, by who we are. So who is Jesus? Well, in his nature, he is compassionate. He is immutably compassionate. Now, immutable is a big word Um, use it at fellowship group and sound really smart. Um, But it's a big word, and all it really means is it's he is unchangeable. Jesus in his nature is compassionate, and that nature is unchangeable. Jesus is compassionate, was always compassionate, and will always be compassionate to sinners. And we see that if we go back to the fall, we see that God promises an offspring to crush the devil after Adam and Eve sinned. He clothes Adam and Eve in animal skin, He kicks them out of the garden so that they couldn't live forever in sin. And then in redemption, we see that Christ fulfills God's compassion for sinners. In Hebrews, we're told that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. We see the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve in the garden of the offspring that would crush the serpent's head. And in Romans 5, 8, we see that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So from the beginning of the creation narrative, we see the compassion of God being played out throughout redemptive history. But did God's compassion begin at the fall? No. Surely not. God is an all-knowing God, as we heard this morning in our prayers. He is omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, and He, knowing that creation would rebel against him, that man would fall, that sinners would sin and wage war against him, he still chose to create. He created anyways. Why? Because of his compassionate nature for sinners. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And later in verse 37, it says, In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we know that Jesus is immutably, unchangeably compassionate. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet, we also see in verse 36 that Jesus is immediately compassionate. Here we see Jesus in his humanity, and he shows us his wonderful heart. He doesn't... Notice, notice what Matthew doesn't say. He doesn't say that Jesus saw the great crowds that were following, and he goes, oh, great, more sinners, more broken people. It's going to be a long day of healing for me. That's going to be a lot. No, it says that he healed every disease and every affliction. And Jesus turned and saw the crowds, and immediately he felt compassion—immediate compassion from Jesus. The word in the Greek refers to the the bowels or or the intestines—a deep gut feeling. It was not just an emotional response of Jesus; it was physiological. I don't know if you can relate to this. I I can, Um, but it's not nearly for the pure motives that Jesus has. But sometimes uh, when I get anxious, I react physically to my emotions. Uh, Sometimes my breathing picks up uh, pace. Sometimes I talk really, really fast. And if you hear me talking really fast uh, this morning, it's not because I'm uh, anxious too much. but sometimes my, I sweat, sometimes it's hard, sometimes waves of anxiety come on me and my life seems to come crashing to a halt and I can't really function for a moment. That's what it's kind of like, except what Jesus feels is compassion. Jesus is brought to that same sort of physiological response for com- with compassion. He is driven to that by his compassionate love for sinners he is immediately compassionate and we see this playing out throughout all of scriptures we remember in john uh, in the death of lazarus is described and jesus knowing full well that he's about to raise lazarus from the dead it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and then jesus wept jesus wept Or when Jesus was on the cross, and if ever there was a moment for him to be pitiful about his situation, to be down on himself, Jesus looks to his mother and to his disciple standing nearby, and he says to him, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home and cared for her. We see Jesus' compassion is immediately directed outward at those he came to save and those whom he loves, lost and broken sinners like ourselves. John MacArthur describes Jesus' compassion as like this. He says that sympathetic compassion is unique to Christianity because it is unique to Christianity's God. Hinduism is perhaps one of the most cruelly neglectful of all religious systems. Its caste system prohibits anyone from even touching those of an alien caste. Its treatment of the sick and dying is sometimes shocking and barbarous because providing them with help is thought to delay the process of karma and reincarnation. Brahim's, the Hindu priestly class, recognize no responsibility to care for the afflicted and downtrodden. Islam, whose history runs red with secular and religious bloodshed, cannot be expected to show much compassion either. The primary motive behind Buddhist benevolence is that the act may lay up merit. Christianity's compassion is unique because it's unique to Christianity's Jesus because it's unique to our God. But why is his compassion necessary? Why do we need his compassion? And that's because Matthew also tells us the state of man. Look at me at the condition of man, who we are. Matthew tells us that they were helpless, harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep are defenseless creatures, not incredibly smart. Uh, They are followers and will blindly follow uh, people, anyone, um, even other animals. And I'm sure you've heard this story, but it's a good story that illustrates the nature of sheep. It was about in Istanbul, Turkey, where 1,500 sheep were grazing. And uh, one sheep jumped off a cliff, and another one saw it. And so it followed and jumped off a cliff. And another one, and another one, and another one. And eventually, there was 450 dead sheep at the bottom of this valley. Some of the sheep who jumped later were spared because they jumped onto a sizable, well-cushioned pile. In the end, thousands of dollars are lost because sheep follow. And if their leaders are not present or not there, then they will follow someone or something else. In Ezekiel 34, verses 4 and 5, God condemns the evil shepherds of of that time. And clearly, Matthew, if you listen to this, you'll see the similarities. Matthew has in mind this passage as he writes verse 36. And so beginning in verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 34, it says... Uh, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. So what is Matthew saying? Matthew is saying that we are helpless, hopeless, Abused, misled, straying, injured, sick, scattered, dead, food for the wild beasts, and food for evil shepherds. That is what Matthew is saying. Matthew is saying that our condition is so wretched that Jesus can go from village to village healing every disease and every affliction, and it means nothing. Nothing apart from his future redemptive work. It means nothing. We do not need mere physical healing. We need something more. We do not need some sort of spiritual healing like a demon cast out. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we need resurrection. We need new life. Jesus says that by nature, we are our fa- of our father, the devil. And we, on our will is to do our father's desires. And his desires are that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And according to Matthew, before Jesus, that is our spiritual father. We are totally lost and helpless without Jesus. That is the condition of man. But In order to truly understand the compassion of Christ, we, not, we must not just understand that he has compassion, but we need to understand how he shows that compassion. So if you'll look with me at verse 35, we'll see how Jesus shows compassion. And in the text reads, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. I want you to notice uh, how that verse begins in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Notice first that that Jesus' public ministry is, is public in its nature. He went through cities and villages, well populated, well seen, well documented. And it was wide in its scope. He went throughout all of the cities and villages, all of the lost he came to seek. And notice that it also leads to an ultimate end, an ultimate display of compassion. As he traveled, Jesus showed his compassion in three primary ways. First, in his teaching. Now, what is the significance of the teaching ministry of Jesus? Well, it's first because it's first Jesus rightly understands our condition as lost, scattered sheep without a shepherd. Sin, because of our sin, we are separated from God. And not only separated from God, but we do not even possess a right knowledge of God. Jesus' teaching is necessary because we need to know who God is. Without Jesus revealing the Father to us, we would not be able to know him. Romans 1 tells us that our unrighteousness is mainly manifested in that we suppress the knowledge of truth in evil. That is what we do. We are foolish, and our foolish hearts are darkened, and we are fools for suppressing the knowledge of God. That is the nature of man. So what, what does Jesus do? He comes as the source of divine knowledge. He comes with ultimate authority, teaching with ultimate authority because he is the image of the invisible God, the son of the living God, sent to image him to the lost and dying world around him. John 1 says that Jesus is the word of God and that he is God and that he became man so that we would see the true light of God. It says no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, except that Jesus has made him known. So he comes to make the Father known to us in his teaching ministry. Knowledge of God is absolutely necessary for salvation. But knowledge does not equal salvation. Knowledge is not enough. The Bible also tells us that the demons know about God and tremble. Knowledge is insufficient to save. But it is necessary. So Jesus comes and he proclaims or preaches. So what is significant about the preaching ministry of Jesus? First, we need to continue to understand that knowledge can't save. So what, the question then is, what did Jesus proclaim? What was he preaching? And Matthew again tells us that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, gospel is just simply the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, we in our wonderful American culture have often misinterpreted the word gospel. We sometimes think of the gospel as, uh, as something that makes us happy or healthy or maybe it'll prosper us in some way, make us wealthy or make us better off or, or maybe it's just going to fix all of our problems. Now, Some of that's true, but it's not really the gospel. Jesus, when he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching looking forward to his ultimate sacrifice, the cross and the empty tomb. He's proclaiming that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, has broken through our world, the kingdom of earth, and it is here. That is what he is proclaiming, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God and it, and he is saying that he is the way he is the truth and he is the life and that no one comes to the father except through him jesus is preaching that if you know him you know his father jesus says i taught you about the father but only through him can you enter into his presence only through jesus can you co- can you come to him and only through jesus can your life be saved? That is the good news of the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, we go from knowledge to a transformed heart that trusts in Christ for salvation. We get knowledge of the Father, and then we get the good news of the gospel. So then we get to Jesus' healing ministry. We have to ask, why, why, why does Jesus need a healing ministry if he's already preached the good news? Well, if if I were to stand up here and tell you that I can save you from your sins, that would be a bold claim. And you would obviously rightly demand some sort of proof that I can do what I say I can do. I mean, if you're going to stake your eternal destiny on my words, you need evidence, right? And, And you would rightly demand that. And Jesus is claiming something that only can be claimed of God. So, does Jesus heal out of his compassion? Yes. But his healing ministry is never meant to stop at that moment. It's meant to point us forward to ultimate healing. It is meant to vindicate his ministry. In Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, it says that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In order to fulfill that prophecy, to heal us by his wounds, Jesus must ultimately heal. And earlier in Matthew, when we look at chapter 9 in the beginning, we see the story of the lame man who comes to Jesus and is lowered through the ceiling. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and and the religious leaders of the day rightly start questioning in their heart, wrongly start questioning in their heart, that who is this that can forgive sins? Who is he? And Jesus turns and knowing their hearts, he says, what's easier, that I tell him his sins are forgiven or I tell him to get up and walk? And then he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He tells him to rise and walk, and he does. So Jesus' healing ministry, he goes town to town, city to city, village to village, preaching, teaching, and healing, vindicating his ministry, vindicating who he is, and pointing forward to an ultimate spiritual healing that takes place at the cross and is secured by the empty tomb on the third day. That is why Jesus comes healing pointing forward to the single offering for sin for all time. So Jesus healed so that we would, one, know he is the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ. He heals so that we would know and believe that he is capable of saving, to point us forward to his ultimate sacrifice, and then to point us forward from that where he rises from the dead in the empty tomb, securing our ultimate healing, and vindicating all he did on earth. So understanding how Jesus shows compassion should build us up in our faith. Should. That he came, taught, preached, and healed so that we would know who God is and how to be reconciled is amazing. Truly amazing. But Jesus is not physically here anymore. He is reigning in heaven, in, in his heavenly Kingdom. So we are left, so are we left in the dark now? No. Jesus not only shows his compassion, shows us he has compassion, but he spreads that compassion. Look with me at verse 37 and we'll see how Jesus shows his compassion. It says, Then He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We see Jesus' heart on full display in his teaching, preaching, and his healing. But now we see Jesus' humanity. We see him looking at the crowds and seeing it and seeing that the laborers are few. It's too much to be done by any one man. There is a monumental amount of people on this planet. The lost are it's staggering. As, as Mike prayed, something like 3 billion people fall into the category of unreached. It's too many for us as a church. I mean, if we just think about how many people we know even in Pocosin or in our hometown that are lost, or in Europe or Africa, or the different tribes, the different tongues, and the different nations. And yet, Jesus commands us to go to share the gospel. And we might feel overwhelmed by this at first. We might. But Jesus also promises us the assurance of success he doesn't invite us to go on to a mission that we can't complete but promises us success in that mission but he also invites us to see the urgency of that mission so in Jesus's metaphor he describes it as a harvest I think we need to ask what is the harvest now uh, sometimes I think we kind of think about the harvest as this field that, that Jesus planted, and, um, and if we just go and we'll bring back good crops, um, and, and that's great. And that's all well and true mostly, but when we look at the whole of Scripture and we see the harvest metaphor used, what we see is it's a metaphor for the judgment of God. The harvest continually throughout Scriptures is used to depict the final judgment of God on sinners, on this earth, and on all people. So in Matthew 13, Jesus tells us a parable. He tells us a parable about a master who sends, who plants seeds in, in this field, right? And then in the night, there is a, an evil one who comes and plants wicked seeds in the same field. And the servants of the master come to the master and say, Master, look what has happened, how horrible this is. What should we do? Should we go and gather up the evil seeds that have been planted? And should we, we take, them out, take them out from the field? And the master turns to his, his servants and he says, No, no, wait for them to be fully grown before you separate the weeds from the good crops. Because if they're not fully grown, you might accidentally grab some of the good seeds, some of the good crops and burn them in the fire with the evil crops. Now, now, what's, what's the point? Well, Jesus, Jesus tells us later in Matthew 13, he explains the point of the parable, and he says that the good sower is the son of man, the field is the kingdom of earth, the evil one is the devil, and the good seed is the righteous, the righteous who by faith put their trust in Christ, and the unrighteous are the evil seed, and the gathering is the end of day's judgment. And the fire that the wicked seed will be sent to, to be burned, is the eternal, unquenchable fire of hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm doesn't die. That is the harvest. And Jesus says he will gather the good crops into his barn at that day. So why does Jesus use this analogy? It's because he wants us to see the urgency of the harvest. So we will understand his urgency. Again, MacArthur is exceptionally helpful. He says, Our Lord, however, knew the tragedy and anguish of a destiny of unquenchable fire where their worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. And it grieved his heart that even one person should be there because it is not his will that any should perish. So what are we to do? Again, Jesus tells us in verse 38, he says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And this has huge implications for us, but first we need to notice our responsibility. Our responsibility is what we are to do. We are to pray and pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. It is His harvest, and we are to pray to Him fervently for the lost in our schools, friends, families, towns, cities, nation, in the for the world. We are to pray that laborers would be sent from this place and from around the world with the good news of the gospel to those who are unreached who do not believe in Jesus Christ. But secondly, we are also, we ought to be willing to go. If you're sitting in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in him and your trust in him, it's because somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for a laborer to be sent into the harvest for you. Okay? And then somebody took the gospel message brought it from where, from where they were, and brought it to you. Somebody went into the harvest for you. If, if that happened for us, we should be willing to take that gospel message to others. We should not just be willing to pray, but we should also be willing to go if the Lord would have us go. That should be our motivation, the why we should go. Because we know that the judgment of God is coming. We know that God has promised us success, that he has ordained our proclaiming of the gospel. In Romans, it says that that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but in order for them to call when they haven't believed, they need somebody to proclaim. It says, how are they to hear without someone proclaiming? And how are they to proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of the gospel. Again, if we do not go, how will they hear? So we must pray, we must respond, and we must go. But we can have confidence because Jesus promises us assurance. Who is the Lord of the harvest? God his harvest who can save the lost God can who sends the laborers God does can we recognize the good crop from the evil those who will and won't put their faith in Jesus Christ no we can do we have any power on our own to save sinners can we create any argument good enough to change the heart no we can't. So our prayers should be as Augustine prayed, grant what thou command and command what thou wilt. God is in control and it is not up to us. And Jesus affirms this. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent him me draws him. This makes Christianity totally unique. We don't go into the world domineering and convincing people with lofty arguments and force that they need to believe in Jesus. We go with the gospel message, trusting that God, through His gospel, will save sinners, will take them from lost to leader, will take them from unregenerate, unrighteous to regenerate, righteous persons before the throne of God. This means we can enter the harvest full of confidence, We can see the lost as they truly are, totally and utterly lost and unable to come to God, and we can witness faithfully because it's not in us to save. If he did that for us, how will he also not do that for so many more? It doesn't mean that he will save everybody, but it means we can labor confidently knowing that his plan, his heart, is good, and he has the power to to change the heart. We can trust his heart because we know that he desires that all should come to him, and none should be lost to the eternal fire. So we have we've seen his compassion. We have seen the compassion of Jesus, how he showed that compassion, how he spreads that compassion from himself to his disciples, and how we as his church should, ap- but how should we as his church apply what we have learned about the compassion of Christ? Now, I want to leave you with seven quick points of application for your consideration this morning, and then we'll be done. First point of application is we ought to have the compassion of Jesus. Jesus loved the lost. He was moved in his intestines for them, for their condition. And he was moved because he had a right view of God and a right view of man. He viewed God as high and holy, the righteous judge and creator of the universe, and man as utterly lost and helpless. And he knew that without somebody to bring good news to the lost, that they would remain lost forever. Do we view man as totally lost and unable to get to God? And do we view God as totally just and right to hold man accountable, even if man doesn't know. If we do, then we should have compassion for the lost the way Christ did. Second, we ought to remember the condition Jesus found us in. You remember that you were among the lost and helpless sheep before coming to know Christ, before somebody proclaimed the gospel to you, before God regenerated your heart, you were lost. You were unable to come to salvation. You were unable in your own merit to, to be to do anything for God. So we should never think, how could somebody do something like that? Or well, I'm so grateful I'm I'm not like them. Or what's wrong with them? Why would they do that? We were just like them, just as lost, just as broken just as dead in our sins until the hand of grace reached down and plucked us and pulled us into his family. Third, we ought to proclaim Christ. His life, death, and resurrection that accomplished our spiritual healing and and his life-giving force is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the power of God unto salvation. There is no gimmick gimmick or or eloquent speech that we can master that can save sinners from judgment. It is only the gospel of Christ. Only Jesus can win souls. Only by understanding that, that God is the creator and judge of the universe and that man sinned and rebelled and is in a state of separation from God. And only by putting our faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ that paid the penalty for sins, That was a substitutionary death on the cross for us, for those who believe by faith in Jesus and repent of their sins and turn away from them. Can any be saved by trusting in Jesus and repenting of their sins? That is the gospel. That is what we must proclaim and preach to the lost and dying world around us. Fourth, we ought to pray. If it's God's harvest, we ought to trust him for the laborers and for the harvest. God has not designed us to be church builders. We are simply to be faithful. He says he will build his church. Not us, he will. He's the Lord of the harvest. He knows who he's called. He knows who he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son our prayers then should just be regular and persistent since only he can bring people to faith. All of our evangelism should start and stop with God. Are you praying for the lost in your life, in your families, in your schools, in your job sites, in your cities, in your places of business? Are you praying for their salvation? And are you praying for laborers to go into the harvest? And fifth, we ought to be willing to go. Notice chapter 10, if you read just a little bit forward, you'll see that the disciples are after this passage are mobilized to go into the world, to go to the lost. It's no coincidence that right after Jesus tells us to pray for the harvest and to the Lord of the harvest, that he then sends his disciples into the harvest. It is no accident. The disciples go. We should follow that example. We should be willing to go. We ought to be willing to bring the gospel to the lost. We are not meant to be gospel cul-de-sacs, but gospel thoroughfares. And sixth, we ought to praise God for salvation. It is His, and we do nothing to affect it. He, he alone gets the glory. This should be true when we remember our own salvation and when we see others won to the Lord. If only God can save, then only God deserves the credit and the glory for saving sinners. So when we see more people brought into the church, more people give their lives to Christ, more people saved from their sins... We should not think we figured something out here at PBC or we figured something out in our own lives or we're so good at evangelism or preaching the gospel. We should give all of the praise and credit and glory to God because he is working to save sinners through that gospel. Every new creature in Christ is a miraculous work of the spirit and God deserves credit and glory for that. And then lastly, we can have assurance. If We were in the harvest, but God brought us out. If you're like me, you often feel like, like maybe you don't have the Spirit working in your heart. Or maybe you feel like you, the task that God would have called you to is too overwhelming, and you doubt. And you doubt. And you doubt. And before you know it, it's not just doubt, it's anxiety. And daily wrestling with the knowledge of whether or not you're saved. Maybe after that doubt comes paralyzing and crippling depression because you just can't be sure and you believe that God is sovereign to choose and you just think, maybe he didn't choose me. But you can have assurance. You can have assurance. And I just tell you that God loves sinners? He is moved with compassion for them. He knew from before the foundations of the world that you wouldn't be good enough, that you couldn't know Him, that you wouldn't choose Him naturally, that you were lost. He knew that, and He created anyway, and He predetermined before He laid the foundations of the earth that you are His. You are His. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are immutably His. And you can have assurance in that. There is nothing that could ever cause you to lose your salvation. And there is nothing that could ever make you stop believing in Him. Because it, the power to believe does not come from you, but it comes from Him who is so much greater so much more powerful. So remember this, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Would you pray with me?